Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, since our last podcast, we got some exciting news about Young and the Restless. So the show has been renewed until 2024, something virtually unheard of these days. Um, you know, YNR has been the number one rated show for over 31 years, and clearly CBS is confident that mm-hmm. it will remain popular, which is certainly great news for soap fans. And I mean, and for us, um, you know, it'd be great if the other soaps could get multi-year renewals like this. You know, Days' recent one-year pickup was like torturously protracted and yielded so many negative headlines all over the world with rumors of cancellation. Um, but the cast reported back to work this week. So there's some good news there too. Hallelujah. I mean, honestly, with everything in, in network television just feeling so tenuous these days, I would have bet big money against YNR getting a two-year renewal. So to know that it's safe for four years is just incredibly heartening. Mm-hmm. Um, as is days being back in production, like I like my cliffhangers on screen, you know, like not any <laughs> nail biters about a show staying on the air. Yeah, here, here. Um, So our Valentine's Day issue was out and we did something a little different this year. So we polled our readers at SoapOperaDigest.com and asked them to vote to determine the greatest super couples of all time. So I don't think the top vote getters were any like really big surprise. You know, Luke and Laura, Bo and Hope, Brooke and Ridge and Nikki and Victor from the shows currently on the air. Um, And, you know, because these are really duos that have made such an impact and their popularity is like universal at this point. Yeah, totally. Now, um, I have to issue a serious mea culpa to the Carjack fans from As the World Turns. Right. Um, So we came up with this idea. We got really excited about it and thought it would be fun for the fans. And we like rushed to get the polls up. And I totally neglected to include Jack and Carly as an option for World Turns. And yes, they should totally have been on the list. And I feel so bad that I messed up. Like I have felt like true guilt. Um, And if you're an angry carjacker and you need to throw daggers at someone, I'm your girl. They can throw it at me too. But we did both have like a (laughs) horrified moment when we realized that. I mean, we felt so badly. Like how could we have forgotten Carly and Jack? Yeah, it was it was human error. That's true. Yeah. Um, I don't know that the results of the winner would have been that much different, though. Lillian Holden won. And actually, Martha Byrne posted a really nice tweet about it. Um, And they were certainly my number one couple from World Turns for sure. You know, there were a few results that surprised me, like maybe because it's who I would have voted for. But I expected to see Todd and Blair at the top of the One Life to Live list. And they actually came third behind both Bo and Nora, who were the winners, and Clint and Vicky, another like long running iconic duo. Um, And I have to say, I was so thrilled to see Jesse and Angie top the All My Children list. 
But I was like really surprised to see uh, Jack and Erica in the second slot, besting Cliff and Nina and besting Greg and Jenny. Uh, There were a lot of interesting results, like within the five options that we gave uh, for the 10 shows that we covered. I mean, Jack and Erica definitely surprised me, but mainly because, you know, I loved me some Cliff and Nina and Greg and Jenny. Like if I was voting, (laughs) they would have gotten my vote. Um, And I think you may have Todd and Blair goggles on a little bit because they were your faves. You know, Bo and Nora were huge. But, you know, when I think about One Life, it really isn't a show that stands out to me as having like hugely like cover-worthy, popular, like, Mm -hmm. super couples. Mm -hmm. They had favorite couples, yes. They had great couples, yes. But ones that I would necessarily put in the same category as, like, Luke and Laura or Steve and Kayla or even Cricket and Danny, it's kind of a no for me. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I I wrote up the synopses that we gave uh, for each of the victorious pairings, and it was really interesting to me how, uh, because we're dealing, for the most part, with, like, long-running duos whose love stories stretched over decades— you see how many um, kind of the more like fantastical soap soap cliches creep into their stories as the years go by. Like taking uh, One Life to Live's Bo and Nora, for example, in the beginning, I think they struck such a chord with the audience because they were like kind of sick of seeing him with much younger women and Mm -hmm. Nora was his age and she was as smart as he is and she was witty and they had like similar interests and um, they had a really mature and dare I say realistic relationship. Right. but, you know, you got to keep the the drama going on a show that has 260 episodes a year. So enter infidelity and divorce and a who's the daddy story with paternity test results that got tampered with and, you know, her marrying his brother and so on and so on. You end up with a lot of marrying each other a whole bunch of times and presumed deaths when an actor like leaves the show for a, a period of time and all of that stuff. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk fantastical tales. I feel like our guest today probably has something to say about those. (laughs) It's actually one half of Guiding Light's most popular duo, Josh and Reva. Uh, We are going to welcome Robert Newman, who played the uber popular Josh Lewis. So let's get him on the phone and check in with him. Hi, Robert. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, happy to be a part of it. Well, we are so happy to talk to you. It's obviously been a while and we certainly still get lots of letters and emails from fans who miss Guiding Light and you in particular. So I think they're going to be very happy to hear what you've been up to. No, that's very sweet. Yeah. I I still get stopped all the time by fans, you know, just on the street or in the supermarket or whatever. And they, they get very uh, uh, weepy actually, uh, sometimes, uh, cause they miss this story and they miss these characters so much. And, uh, they often will ask me something like, so what do you think Josh and Reaver are doing today? <laughs> and what do you say? What do you <laughs> think say, they're doing well, today? Well, uh, Kim, I think is in New Jersey with her, uh, grandchild <laughs> and I'm uh, in the middle of this play up in wherever. And, you know, uh, or I, I say, well, um, I would imagine it's been about 10 years. They've probably been married to each other again and divorced (laughs) from each other again. And they've probably each been married to some other person. Uh, So some uh, other member of each other's family. That's right. Josh (laughs) was married and divorced nine times on the show during the 28 years I was there. So I would imagine he'd be on number 13 or 14 by about now. (laughs) In keeping with his track record, that works. There you go. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, let's go back to the beginning of your Guiding Light experience. Tell us Mm -hmm. your casting story. 
Um, I had just graduated with my degree in theater at Cal State University, Northridge, and I was studying with the Strasburg Institute out there in Los Angeles and sort of, you know, finding my way. And I went to Michigan for uh, a summer of uh, summer stock theater at the Barn Theater, which is still one of my favorite places to work, uh, to get my equity card. So I was an apprentice there. I understudied Tom Wolpat and Carousel, and I got my equity card. And by the way, two other people who got their equity cards that summer were Marin Maisie and Jonathan Larson, who both oh. went on to pretty good careers. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, well, Jonathan passed away quite young, but, um, you know. Um, anyway, I, th- the reason that comes into play is because after that season ended, I went to, I came to New York for what was supposed to be just a week or so to meet some people. Um, and, uh, one of my new agents sent me out on a soap opera interview and I'd never watched a soap in my life other than dark shadows, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, I just didn't know anything about it. I'd never acted on camera before. I was strictly a stage trained person. And uh, I was like, well, what the heck? And uh, I went in and I read for Betty Ray. I don't know if you remember Betty. She was, you know, just an extraordinary human being and a wonderful casting director. And she immediately ran me down the hall to Doug Marlin, who was writing the show at the time, and uh, introduced me to him. And uh, they talked for a minute and said, can you, they handed me an eight page scene and said, can you come in tomorrow and go on tape? And I said, Sure. Why not? <laughs> so I came in the next day and there were six of us, including Scott Bryce, was reading for the role. And um, Betty Ray was just amazing. I, I think she could tell I was a little nervous about it. And she sat me down and we played some cards, I think Pinochle or something like that. And uh, finally, it came time to shoot the scene. And it was me between me and Jennifer Cook sitting at a bar. And um, I remember in the middle of shooting that audition, that screen test, I, uh, went up, I kind of lost my place and there was a pause. And I think they were thinking about what to do. And I mentally went back about three lines and just started three lines earlier with Jennifer and she picked up on it right away. And we just went ahead and did the scene. And later on, Bruce Berry, who directed that screen test said to me that, uh, one of the things they really liked about me was that I had, had I was able to pick up my own dialogue after forgetting it. <laughs> so, so uh, well done. Uh, I, I got that role, and Scott was cast uh, on As the World Turns from that audition. Amazing. So I was Josh. He was Craig, the Craig. Craig Is that Montgomery. What Craig Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and uh, they offered me a three-year contract and gave me ten days to go back to L.A. where I had not been in almost four months. And basically pack up my life and move to New York City. And I did. Where did you and, live? Uh, initially, I lived at what was then called the Times Square Motor Hotel. I was in there for about four weeks while Sounds I was looking for an glamorous. apartment. <laughs> and, uh, well, that was back when Times Square was all about hookers and, you know, uh, uh, drug dealers. And, you know, it was yeah, a so crazy. You, you fit right in. Well, I'm one of those weird people who actually preferred it more then than it is now. Mm-hmm. Now it's very Disney. Mm-hmm. Then I liked it because it was really gritty and cool. But every time I walked into the elevator, it was like taking my life into my hands. And it was a total character study. And <laughs> all of these crazy people who were staying at the Times Square Motor Hotel. And I eventually ended up in an apartment, uh, $600 a month for a tiny one-bedroom apartment on uh, 10th Street between 2nd and 3rd. Down in the East Village. Wow. And that apartment today would probably be 2,000 easily, yeah. I 
so, 2000, um, I think I like four. <laughs> yeah. And I remember go- going to the studio my very first day and I got there early because that's what I do. I had a 7 a.m. call when I got there at like 6.45 and the guard didn't have my name down. And I remember standing there for a minute and thinking, oh my God, did maybe, maybe, maybe they walk their in mind. Their no, not that guy. We wanted the other guy, <laughs> you know, Get us Craig and, Montgomery. Uh, Bruce showed up who had directed me a couple of days before, a few days before. And, uh, he, he, <laughs> I had to use him to get into the studio <laughs> and my first scenes, I just saw my first scenes not long ago, about a year ago, I saw them. Um, What'd the very think? first scene was walking into a bar and, uh, being greeted by Trish by Rebecca Holland. Mm-hmm. I think I was a terrible actor. That's what I think. I, I watched that and I was like, oh my God, why did they even hire me? This is horrible. <laughs> they saw uh, something. Sort of comparing myself to the likes of Tom Pelfrey or somebody like that, who at that age, you know, I mean, Tom was an infinitely, it, it was an infinitely better actor at his age at, at 23 than I was at 23. Let's put it that way. Now you, but you know, I grew and I, you know, I, I learned things and I studied other actors. I studied Chris Bruneau and Jerry Vador and I watched them work and I just sort of found my way. Now you once actually asked Douglas Marland why mm-hmm. he chose you. Do you remember what he said? I do. He said, uh, because you were the only one there who was Josh. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I couldn't tell if that was a compliment or what that was, but it, that was just what it was in his head. You know, he just... That's the guy. That's the person I want for that role. Um, casting is a real mysterious thing. You know, I still go through casting all the time to, you know, work on stage or work on television. And if you're not the guy they have in mind, then you're not going to probably get that role. Mm-hmm. They say a lot of casting happens within uh, the first 30 seconds that you walk in the room. You just you had know, Before that- you even read for something, they just, oh, yeah, that's that's the guy or that's definitely not the guy. You had that big Josh vibe about you. Whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, that was, his, that was, of course, his bad guy days. So, you know, I oh, guess I had. Right. I, he I was a lot, a lot of edgier guys. then. I play a lot of bad guys now. Oh, interesting. <laughs> my daughter tells me, who's 27, my daughter Kendall, and I'm not sure if I should say this on a podcast, but she tells me I've grown into uh, having resting asshole face. <laughs> <laughs> so so I get cast as a lot of bad guys frequently now. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That's so Special funny. skills. Yes, I like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um so did you know Doug well, like in the days that he wrote Guiding Guiding Light? I mean, he's such a legendary figure in the daytime world. I did. He was, you know, he really loved his actors and um we, uh, I would occasionally go to his house, not, not on my own, of course, but with, you know, maybe a group of five or six of us. And we'd go up to his house in Connecticut and, uh, you know, he'd have us for dinner or something like that. You know, he lived a very interesting sort of extravagant lifestyle. He had a big honking mansion, I think up in maybe Ridgefield or something like that. And, um, he, uh, he had a, a full-time, sort of manservant who was his cook and his valet and he drove him everywhere and that kind of thing. And just a super sweet guy. And then we had a really nice encounter. There was one point when Doug was so upset about um, CBS and Procter and Gamble messing with his scripts that he just left town and he went up and did this, did it, it was so odd. He did a production of Gypsy playing Herbie 
like up on Cape Cod somewhere. And I happened to be up in that area and I went to see the show. And we, you know, chatted afterwards. We went to dinner, I think, the next night. And, you know, it was really nice little bonding time. Um, and he told me he was he was not – we started – let me back up a little bit because we went through this period where suddenly we weren't getting any scripts for the week. And we really weren't getting scripts until like the day before we'd shoot. And this was this time period when Doug was so angry at them that he just withheld all the scripts and basically <laughs> wrote amazing. most of them himself. That's like an Erna Phillips uh, move. <laughs> yeah, and he wouldn't – he just wouldn't submit the script until he, the absolute last minute before he had to. He'd get it to the director like two days before the shoot and then, they, and then the cast members would get it the next day and then we'd shoot it the next day. And he did that for a while and, th- and not long after that was when he left. And uh, went off to, um, I don't know where he ended up, World Turns or something like that. I like a, a petty man, Robert, so I'm digging this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did wind up a World Turns. Yeah. So. But he was yeah, really. It all worked out well. Uh, just, and then maybe he, left to do, to create loving, maybe. I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't I know the time frame right. exactly. Yeah, but I think that might be right. If he needed a break from CBS, maybe that's what happened. Loving, which, of course, my wife worked on mm-hmm. many years ago. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, speaking of your wife, you two have been mm-hmm. happily married since 1986. But tell us about... Sorry. Uh, Happily for the most part, but go ahead. (laughs) Um, But tell us about being a single, footloose, and fancy-free guy in New York in those early Guiding Light years. Living in Times Square. like Maybe some Studio 54 trips I've heard of. I don't want to get too (laughs) far down that road. I, I definitely made the most out of being single and living in Manhattan and being on a soap opera. And, uh... There's several nights that I probably don't remember at all, and several <laughs> nights that I wouldn't mind forgetting. And, you know, it was a and it was such a big deal then. You know, I mean, that was still at the high point of the soap operas. You know, really, the '80s was like a huge peak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everywhere I went, Studio 54, yeah, you go to Studio 54 and there'd be a huge line outside. And you'd walk up to the guy at the door and he'd be like, oh, yeah, come on in, Mr. Newman, sure. You know, uh, Hard Rock Cafe, I remember, was a big deal and you could nobody could get in. And then I just go, hey, hi, I'm Robert Newman from the Soap Opera Guiding Light. He'd be like, oh, yeah, Josh, come on in. <laughs> and every amazing. airplane I walked on to, I would, the stewardess would come back, the flight attendant would come back and be like, uh, Mr. Newman, we have a seat for you up front uh, uh it became available you want to bring your stuff and <laughs> she moved me up to first class and hotels were like that too you know it was it was great that's amazing and we all and a lot of us you know we kind of hung out together to a certain extent you know it wouldn't be unusual for um a group of like that same crowd like tommy nielsen and john ship and jennifer and carolyn clark and Lisa Brown. And, you know, we just kind of be out and about at these events all the time. And then we'd hang out for drinks afterwards and that kind of thing. Sweet. Great. Totally. Yeah. So uh, the Josh and Reva story that remains so popular with our readers (laughs) began Mm -hmm. when Kim Zimmer joined the show in 1983. And she Mm -hmm. actually uh, told Digest that you were mean to her in the beginning. Is that how you remember (laughs) it? (laughs) I, I know, but I understand how she thinks that. She and I have talked about that before. So you maybe know, you I, actually had your resting asshole face. Yeah, yeah, totally. asshole face. I think it was more along the lines of a sarcastic, what I thought of as a sort of funny, sarcastic sense of humor. But she took uh, she she took things to heart. So uh, she's not wrong. 
certainly. Uh, if that's the way she remembers it and that's the way she felt about it, she's certainly not wrong about that. But um, I don't think I was ever intentionally trying to be mean to Kim Zimmer. I just, that's not really <laughs> my nature. But I think uh, if I joked about something uh, and uh, she and she just didn't find it funny, then I would certainly understand how she would feel that way. Mm -hmm. Now, we just did a poll for our readers for our Valentine's Day issue of the greatest soap couples of all mm -hmm. time from each show. Josh and Reva, not surprisingly, were number one for Guiding Light. By a landslide. By nice. a landslide. And, you yes. know, they had so many iconic moments over the years, but I think probably what stands out to so many people was the fountain scene in 1984 mm -hmm. when Reva baptized herself the slut of Springfield and called Josh out for only seeing her as a sex object. Um, so what are your <laughs> memories of that day of shooting? <laughs> uh, I think we did that. Uh, I think we taped the dress that day. Kim and I frequently would ask, you know, back in those days, there would be a dress rehearsal. You'd, you'd do a camera blocking and then there'd be a dress rehearsal and then there'd be notes and then you'd shoot the scene. Um, that changed dramatically as the years went on, particularly as we got into the uh, 2000s. But um, And the PPAC years. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry uh, that I've got a nervous twitch that whenever I hear that, <laughs> that the name of that town, I just kind of. Uh, um, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yes. The fountain, the fountain scene. scene. <laughs> I, I am in that scene, right? There, I, <laughs> yes. You, you tell her to put her clothes yes, back okay. on. It's very important. So. <laughs> anyway, when Kim and I would have these like really emotional scenes, we would often just say, you know what, can we just tape the dress rehearsal? Because when you're doing a scene like that, you know, a dress rehearsal can be very beneficial for cameras and lights and sound and everybody else. But if you've done a good camera blocking and sort of gotten everything in the right place, then um, to try to get to that emotional place uh, probably in that scene more for her than for me, but to, to, to get to that emotional place for a dress rehearsal is, it's almost like a waste. It's like if we did, ha had done a dress rehearsal, uh, first of all, she, you know, she would have had to change cause her, she gets all her clothes get wet in that scene. Um, but also, you know, she, she'd probably hold back on the dress rehearsal. And you do something like that, and then you get a note like, you know, if you could go a little further, and you're like, yeah, I know, but, you know, I don't want to sort of peak and waste it without, uh, unless the tape's rolling. And so I'm pretty sure with that scene, we just taped the dress. And uh, I think it was the single take. She just slam dunked it right out of the box. And, you know, it's like, let's move on. So it's it's interesting to me that, that some of these most iconic scenes that you think about for Josh and Reva, the, the didn't necessarily go the full rehearsal process. They went to where we were ready to go. Mm -hmm. So let's shoot, you know. I love that. And 99% of the time, that was the take that they would use. And sometimes they wouldn't even go beyond. I don't think we did a second take of that scene. I'm quite certain of that. All right. So another iconic moment is they got to have like their, their from here to eternity moment. And mm -hmm. had a passionate reunion on the beach with the, the waves coming in. Uh, probably more romantic on screen than it was to shoot, but you tell me. I think that was shot was in freezing. South Carolina. It was <laughs> absolutely freezing cold. I mean, <laughs> they had an ambulance on the beach just for us. So when we would finish shooting some segment, we would, and we're soaking wet, we would go into the ambulance, not just to get warm, but also to breathe oxygen and that kind of thing, because it was such a freezing cold thing. And I remember there was something about oil, something Bruce Berry had this idea of, I don't remember if they covered the clothes in oil or I don't remember how it worked, 
but um, it just we just hit it the wrong time. You know, it was we were on Hilton Head Island, um, which both of us have been to many many times for charity golf things. But um, in this case, we were here. It was doubling as Venezuela, I think, and um, we just happened to hit it on a just freezing cold day to shoot those scenes. So that that picture that you've seen a thousand times that was basically a remake of the picture from here to eternity or this the scene where i'm we're in actually in the water and i think i flip her upside down or something like that and so you know that kind of thing um it was just so cold uh yeah so less romantic in the actual shooting of it absolutely (laughs) (laughs) um now you went on another location for the josh reva wedding in 1989 Mm -hmm. uh which took place in you know cross creek um so tell us about that whole experience of being on location you know with so much of the cast and crew in just that moment that may have been my favorite day of shooting ever and it was certainly my favorite episode ever um, I think I've, you know, that I didn't really watch the show in any kind of a regular way. Um, I always felt a little uncomfortable watching myself on camera. So I just kind of stayed away from it. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be self-conscious about myself. And I felt like if I watched too much of myself on television, I would start being self-conscious about things. And, but that episode in particular, cause I remember it was submitted for, uh, that was what they submitted that year for, um, the daytime Emmy awards for best show. And I think we didn't win. I'm not sure. I think it didn't win, but, um, that day with all of those, with, with just all of those people, you know, um, you know, not just Larry Gates and, and Jordan and, you know, uh, I think it was a first day for, uh, I think Morgan England Morgan England, yeah, I remember that whole thing of him jumping in the water, to, <laughs> which he wasn't supposed to do, and wardrobe panicked because he did it. But um, uh, and also we had friends there. Um, one, two of our closest friends from Hilton Head, actually, Gail and David Wingo, were were in the um, were extras in that scene. Uh, they had been down there when we shot the thing in. Um, on Hilton Head. And in fact, David wrote a song that was used for either the wedding or the Hilton Head thing or something like that. But they were there. Betty Ray was there uh, as one of the actresses, as one of the extras. Um, it, and it was just a perfect day. I mean, the weather couldn't have cooperated better. And Joanne Sedwick, who directed that episode, she just, she managed some shots. And I couldn't tell if it was like she just got super lucky or, but that, there's a specific shot of Reva coming across uh, on the rowboat and she's got that big white hat on and everything in that shot is to me is almost feature film quality. It's just like perfect lighting and the way she's playing it and everything is just so exactly right. And uh, I just think it's a beautiful episode. It was certainly my favorite of the weddings of the many weddings of all the nine. Yes. Um, well, I want you to know that every July 23rd, I still take a moment to watch the clip of Reva driving off the bridge to her presumed death in Key West. <laughs> and poor Josh is standing there on the other side of the bridge going, yeah. Reva, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's emblazoned in my heart and mind. Uh, what do you remember about that trip to Key West and shooting, uh, that the end of that chapter of Josh and Reba. That's, yeah, that's a lot of things because, you know, I, w- I wasn't sure. I know it was the, 
in retrospect, I know it was the end of that chapter, but at that time I wasn't sure exactly where the show was going to go from there. And I actually, my contract was up and I agreed to extend it for uh, a, a period, a short period of time, just to get to the end of what the story that I think Pam was writing then, is that right? Wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And in fact, she sat me down up at her house, her house in Connecticut to sort of lay out the whole, you know, what she had hoped to achieve. Um, not only in that moment, but then w- what followed. Um, but a couple of things I remember, um, a couple of technical things that were kind of funny. One is, um, I remember I was hanging out with Bruce Berry who directed that episode. Um, and he was talking to the stunt guys and he was, there was an issue of, he didn't want the car to veer at all it had, because of the camera work. He wanted it coming straight off that bridge and straight centered off the bridge and they, there's no way it's going to. It's all been, been put together. It's it's just this, uh, you know, we're controlling it this way or doing it that way. It's all going to be perfect. And of course, when we shot it, the car just, just veers and slams into the <laughs> side. And it goes off, you know, but he somehow managed to keep his cameras going, and and uh, I think he loosened up his shots a little bit because he still didn't trust them. So I remember that. I also remember. Um, the, the diving into the water, searching mm-hmm. for Riva part, you know, um, that took a while. The water was warmer than it was in Hilton Head, you know, earlier. But uh, this was down on Marathon Key in, in Florida. And um, they had me d- diving down and grabbing onto, uh, I don't remember if it was a plant or it was something that they put in there. But I would have to grab onto this thing and wait, count a little bit, and then come up because they needed me to come up in the right place for the cameras to catch me coming up out of the water. That whole business of Josh diving under and diving under and diving under looking for Reva. And then I remember a really nice bonding moment with Bruce where um, we had the scene where Josh tells Mara and that was Ashley Pelton, maybe Mm -hmm, it was very young. I think what, five or six years old, maybe Mm -hmm. seven, something like that. And um, they actually had written dialogue for it. And um, Bruce was laying out the scene and showing me where, how he wanted to shoot it. And I said, you know, what if we don't hear the dialogue? What if you see them out there at the end of the pier and you see Josh telling her something, but you don't actually hear what the dialogue is. And then she does sort of this abrupt turn towards the house and then falls into his arms and cries. Uh, you know, Ma- said, our own Mara is getting a little emotional <laughs> yeah. right now. I, I have to tell you. I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm literally playing this scene in my head. I watched it yeah. so many times. And that's if you watch that scene, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So the all the camera work was from the shore, I think. And we were out at the end of the pier. Yeah, I'm getting a little goosebumpy myself. Because <laughs> I remember it was just one of those times with a with a actor and a director and producers where like there's this like we all knew it was sort of the right idea, you know, and, and it turned out beautiful. I thought it was one of the most beautiful scenes in the, in the piece. And not but to I be biased, I, Ashley Peldon was a really, really, really good. Mara. She was, she was yeah, awesome. She was great. Um, and then the stuff that I really didn't know that I referenced earlier, where exactly where, you know, where things were going to go was the whole Josh Harley um, relationship that sort of came out of that. Um, which people still mention to me, which I think is really interesting. They're like, oh, I really liked it when Josh and Harley were together. And I'm like, that was like a minute. 
I, I have the like, vapors right now. You, like, I mean, I know so I've told you this. They were my all-time favorite yeah, couple all, of all time. When and you I, when you talked about how you might not have extended your contract, I started going into an alternate universe where my the course of my life would have been changed if there had been no Josh and Harley. Well, the reason the reason it was limited was because I extended my contract so far, and then I left. You know, and. Oh, that I'm was painfully it. That was as, aware, Robert. That was as far as they got in the story because I just had to go again. It's hard to explain the two times that I left the show. Both times I just had to go and I knew I had to go. And somehow I also kind of knew it, that I might be back. But um, it's just, you know, they're, they're just it, it, when you're on a long term soap contract like that there are times when it just gets under your skin and you just feel like you've got to have a clean break and do some other things and then maybe come back at some point. And later I dealt with that in a better way where um, I would just leave for six weeks to go do a musical somewhere or go do a play somewhere and then come back and feel very refreshed. Um, it's a grind. I mean, I think people understand, you know, well, that you need a break. But also it. when I came back the second time, um, by then, you know, both Connor and Kendall were born. Uh, Britt and I made a very um, definite decision that we didn't want to raise our children in Los Angeles for various reasons. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but we just didn't feel like that was the right place to raise our kids. Every kid in LA is in the business somehow. They've all got pictures and resumes and agents, and we just didn't want that for our kids. We wanted them to have a relatively normal upbringing. And we felt like uh, the East Coast would be a better place to raise them. And um, so when I went back to the show after the second time I had left, so I think now we're at probably 1992-ish. Um, you came back in I pretty much, 93. Yeah, I was coming back. It was like I knew that I was going to be staying as long as they would have me because I just wanted to raise my kids. And the 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 wonderful thing about being on a long-term soap when you're, when you're a parent is I got more time with my kids than any working dad that I knew because I didn't travel all that much. I didn't necessarily work five days a week. It was often three days or two days. I could coach soccer. I could coach baseball. I could do all those things dads are supposed to do. And I just had a lot of time, a lot of great time with my kids. And because I was, you know, making soap opera money, Britt didn't feel any need to, to uh, have another, to have a job of her own. And we talked, we had talked about that early on and she said, no, I, I think I'd rather raise the kids. And so it really worked out great. And we have two just amazing children, well, adults. You know, they're 30 and 27 now, and they're just extraordinary human beings. I uh, I was reading an old interview of yours where uh, you talked about how I think in the period where you lived in L.A. and between your 90, your 1990 exit and your 93 return that you lived mm. like really near Grant Alexander and Michael O'Leary, <laughs> who were also on a break <laughs> yeah. from the show. Oh, we lived next door to Michael O'Leary. <laughs> we were, we were in a, well, we, it makes sense because we were trying to find a townhouse somewhere and Michael and Joni at that time, they've, they've uh, been divorced since then, but Michael and Joni were uh, living in a townhouse in Marina del Rey, uh, overlooking the Marina part, not the ocean part. And, um, they suggested, Hey, why don't you come look? It's a great place to live. And we like being here and blah, blah, blah. And we went and literally the unit next door to them was available. It might've been one unit over. I'm not sure. But, um, but yeah, we were like right next to each other and, um, uh, we would all go do laundry together because <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there wasn't any laundry on the premises. 
<laughs> but just down the block, there was a, a laundromat and a restaurant. And we would all go like on whatever day, Thursday or something, and put all our laundry in, go hang out in the restaurant for a while, you know, transfer everything. So, yeah, there was a lot of bonding back then. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, Michael and uh, Grant and I were all friends already. I mean, we Grant and I bonded earlier on. Uh, before Brit, I would say, uh, before I left the show the first time, Grant and I had bonded, bonded quite a bit of time, quite a bit and spent quite a bit of time together back in that day. That's always nice to hear mm-hmm. yeah. that it's real. Um, so I think it's kind of hard to look back on Josh and Reba without mentioning the very controversial clone storyline. Um, <laughs> Okay. So <laughs> you get in one of those pee pack twitches when we bring up yeah. the word Hang clone. Yeah. <laughs> like that's definitely not uh, my yes. favorite kind uh, of bartender. storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was that. There was the time travel story. You know, were those sort of yeah. a groaner for you, or was it just another story among hundreds that you played over the well, years? Well, I'm positive I've told you this story before, but you know, there was a real. It was the cloning store was. There was sort of an epiphany for me on that one because. When Paul Roush told me about it, uh, just a few days before we started shooting it, I was just beside myself and I just didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, I'm like, should I quit the show? Should I refuse to do this? Because I just knew it was just a ridiculous idea. It was just crazy. And I really had a hard time with it. And I remember that was on a Friday. We were going to start shooting the first few scenes with me and... uh, Oh, what was his name? Who Peter played the Herman. doctor? Peter Peter Herman, who I adore. Um, and I remember um, Saturday, I was a train wreck, and I'm reading these scripts, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is insane!" Because it wasn't even the cloning; it was the rapid growth formula that was really right. making me that shit, that shit crazy about it. And I was like, the, "What are they thinking? This is just insane!" And it was so far out of our sweet spot, you know. The real strength of Guiding Light to me was always about family. That was the core of what made Guiding Light such a great show, was you had the dynamic between a father and a son and a a, a husband and wife and a a daughter. and You know, the HB, Reva, Josh, Billy, Mindy, all of that stuff was what made the show so great, you know, to me, in my view. So this was like, this isn't even our you know, this is the wrong genre. What are we doing? You know? Um, but then I woke up Sunday morning and I was fine. And Britt was like, what happened? And I said, I don't know, just some, somewhere in the middle of the night, it hit me that this is going to happen. Uh, I don't have control over it. I can hate it and be miserable every single minute, or I can choose to embrace it and just give it everything I've got to give and just maybe even enjoy it. And, uh, and I honestly don't know where that came from. I don't know if it was like a God thing or something. I don't know, but it really allowed me to just settle. And the next day, uh, Peter came in and, you know, Peter was all like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) And I I told him that story and he was like, I think that's pretty great. I think I'm going to, I'm with you. Let's go. And so that's the way we tackled that story, you know? And uh, I remember that ridiculous ending when uh, when I came to the next day to be like, 
I've changed my mind. And he goes, oh, it's too late. <laughs> he goes into his, <laughs> the back room and comes out with a with a preemie <laughs> a baby. And, and they did uh, Josh Lewis meet Reva Shane, you know. And both Peter and I just burst out laughing. And the whole crew just burst out <laughs> laughing in the, in the dress. Re- this was the dress rehearsal. And Paul was livid. He came out. He's like, you can't make fun of this. And I said, Paul. If I can't make fun of this, I'm my head's going to explode. You just need to you just need to leave me alone and let me do what I do. Okay? And he was like, "Well, we can't, you know, we're blah, blah, blah. you know, Paul was always so intense about everything and I was like, "Paul, just just you got to trust me." And of course, we did the take and it was perfect and everything, you know. So, um that's the way I approached the story. And, and I just tried to you know, find the good things about it that I could find throughout the course of it. But I knew it was going to be unpopular and it was, it's pop. It's more popular now. I think as people remember it, than it was that in we, the, than when we were actually watching. It. Yeah. We yeah. got some horrible fan mail for, on that thing. And, and they lost a lot of viewers during that time. And, you know, it was, I, I thought it was so funny that the Bible belt was all freaked out about the cloning, but they didn't have anything to say about the rapid growth formula, which again, <laughs> to me, that was the really ridiculous part of the story. You're like, why is no one feeling me on this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah um, well, well, we'll move on from Josh and the- Oh, and the, they also, by the way, they also promised me I would never sleep with the clone. Uh-huh. And that didn't- and then I got the first, and it turned out not just once, but <laughs> twice <laughs> with a clone. And boy, I got some real bizarre mail on that because it was, you know, suddenly it was Josh the the uh, child molester or something. I mean, it was like, oh my god, I can't. You can't you know, wait. She's in only that. six months. She's only six months old. You know, and you're like, uh. oh man. And then the. Um, and then that was followed by the uh, two things: the time travel and the um, the Annie, uh, yeah, uh, mind control thing or whatever you call that. You know, because I remember being with a group of my fellow soap opera buddies from all the shows, and right after that period, and I said, "No, no, no, I win." <laughs> We're comparing ridiculous stories, and I said, "No, no, no, no." I had the clone. I had the mind control drug and I had the time travel storyline. So <laughs> You're like, those were seat. the craziest, craziest, <laughs> I guess about two years on, on of my, all my time on God. Oh man. Now, uh, as we, we talked about, Josh did, you know, marry other women and have other leading ladies. You were, you mm-hmm. were uh, worked with Michelle Forbes and Cynthia Watros yeah. and Crystal Chappelle. Mm-hmm. Um, but those relationships were always like runners up to Josh, Josh and Reva, you know, um, as an actor, like, did you find being part of a super couple on the show to be a blessing or a curse or a bit of both? Oh, I, you know, I don't think it affected me really in that way. It, I didn't, you know, I, I just, I always focused on the script that was in front of me today or the storyline that's in front of me this week or, the, or this month. I didn't, I didn't. I, I purposely tried to stay out of the minds of the viewers and just focus on the work that I had to do to play the character to the best of my ability that was, that was given to me. And I loved, um, I certainly still love Crystal. Uh, <laughs> I still work with her on Venice, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I adore Crystal. I've always loved Crystal. I love Cynthia was just a, 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 just a force to be reckoned with in her own way. And, you know, she was just fantastic. Michelle Forbes. I knew Michelle really didn't like doing soap opera from like day one. <laughs> and I knew she, w- she wasn't going to be with us for very long. And, you know, she got out of her contract early because she was just not happy with it. But what a tremendous actor to be working with her and Joe Breen. 
um, both of them, I don't know if you remember Joe. He yeah, was, Will Jeffries. Yeah, Will Jeffries. I mean, the, the three of us, really the four of us, including Kim, I mean, we really had some amazing stuff to play there. That, that was actually a pretty good story, I thought. Um, but, you know, having said all of that, I also know that for the fans, you know, they, they wanted Josh and Reva together. And, you know, I think the things that the writers always understood and you guys probably always understood and, and we understood was that once, once you get them together, you have to break them up. <laughs> you know, you can't just have Josh and Reva be happy for the next 10 years. It's just, it just can't, the story can't be told that way. So, um, uh, I just invested entirely in whatever, um, uh, leading lady they put me with at any given time. I just, I just dove in a hundred percent and did my job, you know? And, um, so it didn't really affect me in the way that you're suggesting I mean, I- where it wasn't a blessing. It wasn't a curse. Mm-hmm. It was just what it was. And I always knew that, um, uh, but I always knew too, that Kim and I had a different kind of chemistry, I think than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that about the men that she worked with that weren't Josh, but, um, but I just knew, and we still do. I mean, for the few fans who were able to see us on stage in the Lion in Winter, or even more to the point, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah, it's like we we just have this thing that happens on stage or in front of a camera um, that connects us. Or even in these this recent uh, few episodes of Venice that we shot together, I watched a little bit of that, and I was like, wow, look at us. Hmm. <laughs> Still got it. <laughs> Still got it, baby. <laughs> um, now is known, as we could say, you were for the romances on the show. You also were part of a very iconic family, the Lewises. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say the name Jordan Clark, who played Josh's brother mm-hmm. Billy, what comes to mind? I just love that man. Uh, you know, I, he and I just, I've never had great relationships with my brothers. I have, um, my brother and my two stepbrothers and they've never been good relationships. Jordan sort of filled that, um, place for me. Um, and I think in a way I did for him too. And the kind of work that he and I did together, um, was not just about two actors reading lines. It was, it was, uh, two men who really appreciated each other. We had long talks about all kinds of things and, um, not just the show. It's, it's easy to sit and yap about the show, you know, and, but, um, all kinds of things. And, um, um, he and I would ru- always run dialogue, you know, most, most, most people I ran dialogue, but, uh, he and I very specifically would get together when we have scenes together, uh, on our own in a dressing room and just bat back and forth ideas and line readings and, and just, and we would find this rhythm between the two of us, uh, that just made shooting the scene that much more special, whatever the scenes were. But just, and I, there's very few actors that I, I'm trying to say this without sounding like I'm too full of myself, but you know, there's, there's very few actors that I watch and I think, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I can do what he does. It's just so genuine and honest and true and real. And Jordan is one. Um, and I would say Justin Dees was probably one too. Those two guys, they just, 
bring something else to the table. And I think a lot of it has to do with their own life histories. You know, Jordan went through a lot of things in his life. And uh, I think the, those always were sort of just out there and available emotionally for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I um, covet that, you know, that's a, it's, it's just gr- a great way to work. Your father on the show, H.B. Uh, Lewis, was played by the late, great Larry Gates. Uh, tell us about working with him and your relationship with him. Well, in a similar way, you know, I, I had a, I also had a difficult relationship with my own father. And um, Larry, Larry was just a tremendous mentor to me and a father figure to me. I learned more about the craft from him than any person I've ever worked with then and since then. Um, he was just so honest in his portrayal of that character. I remember when they talked briefly after Larry had passed away and they talked briefly about um, uh, replacing him. And I was like, God, no, please don't do that. I just, and even when they, I think that what was that weird period where they found somebody to be Larry? It's like in a movie or something, or it was something in PPAC, and I can't remember what it was. Is that when they, they were doing another, the Josh and Reva movie? Maybe they had like another H.B. Lewis or something, and I was like, yeah, just don't. It's almost like when they tried to replace Jordan, mm-hmm. right? You know, with uh, Jeffrey, I can't get his last name in my head, but um, yeah, and he was a nice enough guy, but the, you just there's just some people that you feel like you can't replace, and Larry was definitely one of them. And um, yeah, you know, I miss him all the time, and I think about some of the lessons he taught me and I, you know, he taught me a lot about being willing to make a complete horse's ass out of yourself. (laughs) And I always think about that when I'm doing, you know, I just finished playing daddy Warbucks for the third time. And there's just so much playfulness in that role and in that musical. And I think about that idea, you know, just, just, just make fun of yourself and just enjoy it, you know? And, um, he and I talked quite a bit right before he died. I went up to his I would go up to his place up in Connecticut about uh, every couple of weeks or so, and we'd just sit and chat for a couple of hours. And and now I look back on it and I think, why didn't I bring a camera <laughs> and a tripod and just set mm-hmm. this stuff up? And and then he was gone. And um, one of the saddest moments for me prior to his death was um, he and Kim and I had always thought about getting on stage together. In the early days, it would have been Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with you know Larry playing big daddy and, and, um, Kim and myself. And, um, of course we all got, Kim and I anyway, got too old for that. So, (laughs) but I remember he, about two years before he died, he was away doing, uh, playing the narrator in our town and he came back and I said, how'd it go? And he said, Robert, I'm never going to step on a stage again. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, there were just too many times when I didn't know where I was. I couldn't remember the lines. I couldn't remember the dialogue. And I, I remember my heart sank for him because that's a terrible place to be in on stage. But also that my heart sank because I knew he and I would never get on stage together. And that would have been the one thing that I wish I really had done. I wish I had just made that happen somewhere. Um, but uh, I miss him. Every, I miss him terribly. Mm-hmm. I know we're both like, yeah, (laughs) we need a moment. Well, it's, you know, I have to say it's interesting. It just goes to me to speak to, I think Guiding Light was such a powerfully multi-generational show. 
And I was such yeah. a fan of Larry Gates's when I was watching that show as like a 12 year old. You know, it, it's uh, I'm so glad I got to see him work and the two of you work together. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing. We had some really funny times and some really. And I, I've told the story before, I think before that I, um, you know, I spoke at his funeral, Larry's funeral. And then the writers came to me when it was time for HB's funeral and asked me to write my own eulogy, Josh's eulogy, um, which I did and, uh, which the, and which they edited by the way. <laughs> oh, really? uh, yeah. Well, no, they, I wrote it too long. That was the bottom line. So they helped me to kind of find the places to cut, cut out. And, uh, and I just remember that day, um, where Kim and Jordan and I were at a table, um, waiting to shoot some scenes and we would we were telling Larry stories and we were just laughing and crying and and then they would roll tape and there would be uh, Billy Reva and Josh telling stories laughing crying you know it was it was the most uh, it was the most I'd ever experienced life and art just being right on top of each other in the same moments and uh it was hard. It was uh, it was hard. Um, now, obviously, with Guiding Light being, you know, such an important part of your life, um, what do you remember about getting the news of the cancellation? I was uh, on my way to PPAC. And uh, I got there. And a producer came running up to my car as I pulled up because they'd already started shooting. And I was, my call was later, like at 11 or something. And he said, uh, I, I have some terrible news. And I immediately thought of Britt and Connor and Kendall. And I was like, you know, what? <laughs> and he said, the show's been canceled. And I was like, oh, Jeez, God, you scared the hell out of me. What a terrible, I mean, my God, what, we, you know? Cause he was so like upset, you know, and so like full of it. And I, and, I, and I just, I didn't mean to blow it off. Like it didn't mean anything, but, um, you know, where my mind went first was so frightening that the idea of the show being canceled was secondary. And, um, and then I also, I had another thing that had happened that week where some very close friends of mine lost their 23 year old son in a car accident in, um, on the New Jersey Turnpike, he was killed. Oh God! And uh, they asked Britt and I to sing at uh, his memorial service, which was that day, April first. And um, I couldn't because I I couldn't get out of the show. I had to work, but I knew Britt was going to sing at the memorial service, and um, and I knew the memorial service started at um, I think twelve thirty. It was an afternoon service, and uh, when Ellen and uh, the other folks from P&G or whatever called us all in to the main sort of cafeteria area up there in PPAC to talk to us about the cancellation of the show, the minute she started talking, I looked up at the clock, and uh, it was 1230. And I thought "Wow!" of not just Brit, but I thought about our friends, the Crockett's, sitting in the front row of that church and their son in a casket. And I just thought I can handle this. I can handle this. I can't handle what they're doing right now, but I can handle this. This is, this is a job. 
you know, it's uh, the fact that I had the job for so long is one thing, but it's just still a job. We all change jobs. People change jobs on a regular basis. I can do this. And so it just gave me a perspective that, um, you know, just helped me to work through it. I think in a different way that, that others might've worked through it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure. And also, um, in those last few months I was working on stage. I was doing a musical called sessions, uh, uh, off Broadway. Um, I was doing the last couple of months of guiding light and eight performances a week <laughs> of this musical wow. that continued on after the show ended. So after we shot our last day, I actually went to work the next day for the, for the matinee of, of sessions. So wow. I didn't have that sort of weird period of adjustment that I think every, a lot of other people experienced. Mm-hmm. And I continued with sessions for another three months after that. So I just, I just kept working, you know? So, and then I remember I, 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 uh, I do have a picture that I, I'm not sure if I ever posted it or not, but it was a picture I sent off to my, some of my friends of the day after sessions closed the next day I had Kendall take a picture of me. I was in like a bathrobe and bunny slippers and I had like a mud, <laughs> a mud pack on my face, my hair up and in a shower cap and a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And I was like, ah, unemployment day one. <laughs> If I if I can find that, I'll send it to you. Oh, please do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure I want you to publish it. No, we won't. No. Just for us. Just for it. our I'm time. just going to keep it in my wallet. It's totally normal. It's fine. <laughs> um, the, uh, the final scene of Guiding Light was set a year in the future, and Josh and Reva got their happily ever after, at least, you know. <laughs> at least on CBS. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, well, we have to assume that there have been like, as we said, seven to nine divorces uh, following yes. that. But right. tell us remember uh, what you remember about that day and that experience uh, of actually playing Josh for the last time. Well, there's two different things there. You know, we did, we didn't, sh- the last day of shooting wasn't the lighthouse. Um, that was actually shot a few days before the last day of shooting. So there was that experience where we actually shot the last scene. What we knew was the last scene of, of the, uh, yeah, of the entire episode. That was the last scene. Uh, I think about it. Heard the last line is, uh, is, uh, always, I think, right. Reva saying always. And, um, so that experience, I don't know, that was kind of a fun day, actually. Again, a very pretty day. We, we both, I think, liked the idea that they were jumping ahead in time. I remember I was very confused as to what the kid was doing there. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who is this? And why are we driving off into the sunset with Jeffrey's kid? I don't, not understand, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> but not my job, you know. <laughs> so I'm sure um, Josh rapidly aged him as soon as they <laughs> faded to black. Sure, sure. <laughs> Uh, we both love the truck. I remember that both of us <laughs> wanted to buy the truck, <laughs> but it wasn't for sale. Um, and then, so that, that day was a lovely day and, and, uh, you know, it was a, it was a nice day of shooting, but the final day, um, you know, that everybody knows the whole story, you know, Grant was running around with tequila shots for everybody. And at the end of every scene when if it was the person's last scene the stage manager would announce that person and how many years they'd been on the show and that kind of thing and that included the crew as well you know they would uh and it was just like a big party day um i i don't quite remember the last the very last scene we shot i think it was outside of the 
what was supposed to be cross Creek. And I think it had to do with a car or something like that. Um, I just don't remember what scene it was though, but you know, Kim and I shot our last scene and, uh, um, Bolt took a shot at tequila and <laughs> <laughs> hung out for the rap party. You know, we had a big rap party that day. And as I usually do, I remember I left that early. Um, I'm, I'm still, I'm still a pretty extreme in terms of being an introvert. And, you know, I just have trouble being around large crowds of people. And I hung around for a couple of hours and left. Plus you had to work the next but, day. I'm like uh, yeah. all those other tequila drinkers. I did. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You're busy. And a week later, I was able to take a week off the musical, and my family and I went down to Mexico for a week. Very nice. More tequila. And continued the, <laughs> continued the tequila. That's right. Um, now, is there ever a chance that you would return to a soap, even though they're all on the West Coast? What if one came calling? I don't know. My agent asked me that just the other day. He... Um, yeah, I, I guess because uh, uh, a few weeks ago, they somebody contacted him about like just a cameo kind of thing. They wanted to know if I was in L.A. and, you know, and if I was, it'd be kind of cool to have him come on and do this thing here and blah, blah, blah. But I was like, no, I don't think I want to do anything like that. And, um, you know, it is difficult because they're all in Los Angeles and I and I have no interest in living in Los Angeles. So that's a problem. Um, but. But he and I talked about it to a certain extent because um, uh, I'm not sure which – a couple of the shows shoot sort of uh, like uh, 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off. They're in like this kind of a schedule. And I thought, well, if it's something like that, maybe I could make that work. I mean I travel a lot for work now anyway. I do plays and musicals all over the country now, so I'm constantly traveling and constantly away from home. Um, but if it really entailed like – a decision to move out to Los Angeles, I kind of think that wouldn't happen. I don't know. There are a lot of actors who go back and forth. Yeah, Britt and I would talk about it and we'd see. But I, I think it would have to be um, a, a, a contract role of some kind. I don't I don't see myself coming out and, you know, shooting a couple of episodes or something just because. I love what I do now. I really do. I, I get to play these amazing characters you know just these last two years i've tackled sweeney todd for the first time and it was just a joy and uh, the year before that i was playing edna and hairspray and it was just so much fun you know and daddy warbucks and annie or you know doing kiss me kate or i'm just doing all these great plays and musicals that i kind of got knocked off my track on way back when you know, I, when I graduated from college and was studying the craft, I really intended to be a stage actor and may not have had any success in that, but that was where my mind was. And then the soap took me out of that. And I'm, I don't regret any of it, but now I'm getting to play all these roles that I didn't get to play before. Um, and I'm just, and I just love what I do. So the soap work. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would depend on what the role was. I'm sure it would be a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of fans, obviously, I, I, honestly, I've seen fans talking about how they want you to be Jeff Weber on, on General Hospital, which was Richard Dean Anderson's old role. Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't know. I think if they reached out and uh, I just have to look at whatever 
they were, what the role was sure. and what the deal was. And then I'd kind of go, well, yes or no. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, I know Mara would be happy. So would yeah. I if I saw you again in daytime. I mean, it'd be all right. <laughs> but it's so cool. I mean, you have worked also a lot. On, you know, you've been on Homeland. You've been on House of Cards. You know, it's it's neat that uh, you seem to still have your fingers in, you know, both worlds. I do. And um, I always appreciate that work. Uh, I'll tell you, though, it's there's a byproduct of being on soap opera for so long. When you're shooting on something like uh, Homeland or Criminal Minds or something like that, it just uh, – God, I shouldn't say this in public. It just bores the hell out of me. I mean the day is so long. And, you know, we, I always use this example that is seen on Homeland there that was maybe three or four pages of two characters walking and talking down a sidewalk. And they called me to the set at 6 after I'd been there since like – noon they called me to the set at 6 p.m because it was a night thing and uh we wrapped at 2 a.m this was down in charleston i think and um so this like 10 hour period to shoot or or eight hour period to shoot this three-page scene we would have shot probably two-thirds of the script of guiding light that day in eight hours you know that's the way my mind works it is is fast and furious and um so when I'm sitting around in a trailer all day, long, I just, I mean, people think that that's cool and glamorous, but it just bores the hell out of me. And um, I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's fun to be around people. You know, Mandy Patinkin and I had a long talk during a lunch break and that was pretty fantastic. But, um, yeah, um, I like the work I'm doing on stage right now. That's what I like. Well, and... Seems like a lot of our listeners around the country could <laughs> catch you at various times. Totally. Yeah, they're always like, you know, whenever I post that I'm doing a play and I was just up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they're like, can't you do something in Houston? You know, <laughs> right. you're like, can't you do something where I live? And I think, well, I'll get around to it. <laughs> working in a lot of theaters all over the country these days. So, Well, we got the whole year ahead of us. <laughs> Well, Digest has has been covering you since like before you were married, before you were a dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now like your kids are adults. Like give us an update on on Britt and Connor and Kendall. Everybody's doing great. Uh, you know, Britt um, has become very successful in her business. Um, a few years before the show went off the air, I kind of had an inkling about it. I think in some ways even before the cast did because of my work with uh SAG and AFTRA. So as a union, you know, uh, uh, being on the national board and all that, I kind of had an idea of what was going to be happening, particularly in New York with soap operas before I think other people did. And it wasn't looking good. Uh, she decided to go back to get school. The kids are now, you know, we're at that time, you know, Connor, I think was college and Kendall was, you know, up high school and so she went back to school and took her degree in interior design and went to work for a big firm in new york for a couple of years and then uh hated it uh hating work hated working for the firm that she was with and she branched out on her own and developed brit newman design concepts which you any person can go online and go to her website and see and she does these huge houses in greenwich connecticut she's working on one right now that's ridiculously multi 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 million dollar mansion kind of stuff she does townhouses and condos in Manhattan, and she's just brilliant. 
she's absolutely brilliant. She does beautiful work. Um, and, uh, she's really developed, a, she's her own business. I always joke that, uh, when I'm not working on stage or on television, I work for Brett. Uh, <laughs> I help run her books and stuff like that. Believe it or not, that's something I happen to have a skill in. And, uh, uh, she pays me in martini golf. I always tell people, <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's doing great. And, uh, we're 32 years, I think, or something like that, or three. We're 1986, September of 86. So yeah. Um, and we're, and we're doing great, you know, uh, talking about retirement kinds of things. Um, Connor, our son is 30 and he got married in September to Caroline uh, who we've, who's been sort of with him and part of our family for the last five years. And uh, we adore her. Their marriage was, their wedding was absolutely gorgeous at a place up in the manor up in Connecticut, further North of us, just gorgeous. And, um, a lot about grandkids. So Britt and I are considering a move further up to be closer to them near Boston. Oh, wow. Uh, they both work in Boston. She's a lawyer and he, he uh, runs a, uh, um, an office building kind of space. And Kendall is uh, 27 years old. She's a manager at uh, Starbucks uh, here in Stanford, Connecticut, where we live. And uh, she's doing great. You know, I mean, I'm immensely proud of both of my grown children and I love them both with all my heart. So it's all good. Well, it sounds like everyone's doing well. And what a great update. Thank you. Yeah. And we've got our two cats and, you know, just living in sort of a normal life. <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good way to be. Well, we thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a fun talk and a walk down memory lane. Uh, it was for me, too. It's nice to think back on some of this stuff. And remember that there was a lot of great stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of great relationships. All right. Well, All have right. a great rest yeah, of your day. Thanks again for joining us. We'll thank talk you, soon, Robert. Have a- have a good rest of the day, too. Take Thanks, care. Thanks. You, Thank too. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Robert Newman for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.